So we're going to read the, the, the closing words of John 20 and the closing words of John 21. Just four verses for us this morning. We're going to read from John chapter 20, those words that have been quoted virtually every week. Uh, John 20 verses 30 and 31. And then we're going to read John 21 um, verses 24 and 25. The purpose of this book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in these books. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John 21 from verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I quoted Augustine the first week that we started John's Gospel. I think I put it on the screen. John's Gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. I wonder if that's been true in these, in these recent weeks, that there has been times in this series of great simplicity, times where we have looked at what Jesus has done, who he is, and we've just gone, I get that. But yet there has been such great depth for us. You think of the times in the upper room where Jesus spoke of his Holy Spirit coming and just the richness and the theological depth that we have as we get that insight into the relationship between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Spirit. We've gone into immense details over the months. But yet at times we have seen such simple simplicity. I wonder when the last time you watched Mastermind was. I never watched it when it was on the telly. Contestants choose their specialist subject, if you've not seen it. And you get, how long is it? 60 seconds, 90 seconds? Um, and on that specialist subject, you've got to answer the questions uh, that they will give you based on your subject. John Humphreys, for all those years we present this program, he was great with that. Um, and I wonder what your specialist subject would be. Maybe you're a connoisseur, maybe you're quite fine. Maybe it's like the old golf course at St. Andrews or something. That might be your subject. Maybe you're a local connoisseur and you're going for the history of Tonic's tea cake wrappers. Or maybe I would go the 17-18 Hibs season. I went home and away every game. So I'm pretty confident I'd know the results. But I wonder, of course, we pick fields, don't we? Um, and you would pick subjects. You might have had this conversation before. If you went on Mastermind, what would you choose? Uh, you can have it over lunch. But as we come to John, the end of this gospel, I wonder if you were sat in that Mastermind chair and the subject was John's gospel, how you'd do. You might be asked questions like, how many jars were turned into wine? What miracles does Jesus do in John chapter 9? What question does Jesus ask? In John chapter 16, verse 5, who were the seven disciples that were present at Jesus, uh, with Jesus in last week's passage? Don't worry, I'm not going to haul anybody up here. And I hope you've learned a lot. I do. I hope you've learned things. I hope you've learned, maybe you've learned that John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, the writer of the book, are two different Johns. Maybe you've never realized how much of this book has been spent in the upper room with Jesus sitting with his friends, teaching them, serving them, loving them. Maybe you've seen things and understood things that you've never seen before. Imagery and miracles and teaching in a different light from our studies. 
And it's all right if you're sitting there thinking, oh no, I'm a bit of a sieve and I can't really, I've not held much information about John at all. Go back, go back and reread it. But I'm not particularly interested in how many details you have retained for the sake of it. Specific details are good for a round of mastermind. They're very important for a round of mastermind. But they're not particularly, they're important, but they are not the most important thing. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is key. The Lord Jesus has revealed to us in the scriptures. Knowledge of the scriptures is important. Because without that knowledge, we can't know Jesus. But knowledge on its own is not the most important thing, is it? It wasn't the most important thing to John. It's not the most important thing to me. John didn't say these things are written so that you might learn. He didn't say these things are written so that you would boss around a mastermind. But he said, if John's purpose was just knowledge, his gospel would have been very, very long. Very, very, very long. Because there's much more he could tell us. There's much, much, much more he could tell us that he deliberately doesn't tell us. There are so many things that Jesus did with every one of them written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's much he could write. But it's not about just knowing. It's not just about retaining information. It's not just about knowledge. But rather, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Real, really simple this morning, do you believe it? Do you believe that this Jesus that is revealed to us in the Gospel of John is who he says he is? Do we believe that he is worthy of our belief and our faith and the dedication of our lives? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? There's no birth story. In John, we have this exceptional uh, opening passage, don't we, of the eternal Christ, of the Word became flesh and everything with that. There's no baptism of Jesus. There's no teenage Jesus. There's not a single parable here in John's Gospel. We looked at some of those living parables. Uh, the living parable last week, the idea that Jesus uses events and, and, and speaks imagery through that. But this book is so focused. It is so focused that this is who Jesus says he is. This is who he proclaims to be. And now these are the stories that are going to prove it. John isn't exhaustive. If John wanted to be exhaustive, he would have covered the testimonies of the 500 eyewitnesses that had seen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. But they aren't necessary for the purpose of you to believe. John doesn't give us the birth story. He doesn't give us the baptism. He doesn't give us the teenage years. He doesn't give us parables because he doesn't deem them necessary in his writings for you to believe. This whole gospel, everything contained within here, are the events and the evidence to support the claims that Jesus is the Christ. The NIV uses the word Messiah. We can use them interchangeably. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one the chosen one. From chapter 1 to chapter 21, the fact is painted for us that Jesus stands alone. He isn't some Old Testament type of Messiah. He isn't some kind of figure, a prophet that points to the one he will come. He is not some kind of redeemer, but he is the one that stands alone. I like buffets. I like breakfast buffets the best. 
go from a Danish pastry to a sausage to a bit of cheese and ham. It's quite, it's quite good, doesn't it? I like it. Jesus isn't sat there on the buffet table. He's not sat there amongst other gods. He's not sat there at your pleasure to pick which one you fancy today. He hasn't sat there amongst equals. He can't be exchanged for another at our leisure. He can't be picked up and put down and thought, nah, not the day, I don't fancy him. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, and he stands alone and he stands above. He stands utterly holy and utterly righteous and utterly sovereign, and he stands in your place to take your burden of sin. There is no other. That's central to the entire message of the Lord Jesus, to the Gospel of John. There is just one like him. There is just one Christ. There is just one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. This is the man that the prophets speak of. This is the anointed king of Israel that the prophets had promised. And the single most important detail that proves that this man is the Messiah is the resurrection. That is the bit that all of this falls on. So John's claim is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He is asking, do you believe that Jesus rose again? Many kings with many kingdoms that would all come to an end. Kingdoms that would die with kings. Kings who wouldn't live forever, but there would be one. One prophesied, Isaiah, Daniel, 2 Samuel, the one whose kingdom will last forever. And as we've read, that if this one could defeat death, this kingdom would be eternal. And when Jesus defeated death on the cross, and when he rose again, he proved that he was the long awaited Messiah. Further back in this passage in John 20, we see the wonderful uh, proclamation of Thomas, don't we, my Lord and my God, when it finally clicks for him. It finally clicks when this resurrected Jesus, days after the other disciples stand right in front of him, he realizes who it is, and he just worships. He worships God for who he is. You know, there's been so many things done. There's been so many signs for these disciples. There's been so many things that they have witnessed and it's made them, it's qualified them as eyewitnesses. All of these gospels are given to us as eyewitness accounts. Testimonies, things heard, things experienced, things seen. Of course, nobody saw the resurrection. No GoPro sitting in the corner of that tomb. There was no eyewitnesses to that moment, but the disciples saw this resurrected Jesus, and that shows the reality of the resurrection to us. John 13, 19, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I am who? The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, the appointed king. So, you believe it, that this whole book points towards the one who stands alone and fulfills the role of Christ, of the Messiah, that in him all the plans of God, past, present, and future are made manifest to us in the work of the Lord Jesus at Calvary. So to ask you, do you believe in the Christ, is to ask you, do you believe in the resurrection? 
Do you believe in the evidence that has been put forth in front of you that this is real historical fact that sits in front of you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Secondly, do you believe that he is the Son of God? Jesus came from heaven. He became a man. And when we look at Jesus, we can say that's what God looks like. This is what God is like. John lays this foundation that when we see Jesus, we draw the conclusion that this is what God is like. That this is what God said. This is what God did. Isn't that amazing? That the Son of God to us reveals God. We see it from the very beginning, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son of God, the only Son. We'll never understand it, the relationship between Son and Father. Many have tried. I'm sure you've seen the kids' talks that involve eggs, shells and yolks and whites and water and and steam and all these modalistic heresies, really, but we try, but we'll never get there. We'll never find any form of illustration to explain to us our triune God. You see, the, the, the Messiah is this, is the power, it shows us the power of God. It shows us the power and the ability of God to, to overcome death. And Jesus, as the Son of God, shows us the, 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 the personal expression of God. I think that's what we see in these two questions in in these two statements, in the Messiah, we see his power. In the Son, as referred to the Son of God, we see the, the, the personalness of God towards us. So, working on the assumption that you believe, if you are wholly convicted by the Spirit that this Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he really did rise from the dead, that in his place the Spirit has come and is with you today, dwells in you and with you, that you know the joy that comes from a relationship with the living God, what does it mean? It means that you might have life. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Yesterday I was at the Scottish Reform Conference. It was great to see a good number of folks from the church there. And Sinclair Ferguson talked wonderfully um, during the day yesterday on Romans 5. And just these simple reminders of the first two verses of, John, uh, of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. By believing, you have faith. And through that faith, you have been justified freely. The great exchange. Your sin for his righteousness. Your rubbish for his beauty. Your emptiness for his lavishness the great exchange it's what Roman it's what Paul tells us so wonderfully throughout the book of Romans but it's what John showed us isn't it that by belief we might have life 
remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable that the Savior's righteousness is swapped for my sin so that I might know him. Reminds us that our justification, our right to heaven, our invitation in rests solely on his shoulders. He stands alone. He is alone. It's all about him. His grace is sufficient for your sins, for my sin. And because he stands alone, as Romans 5 says, we might stand before him because of his grace. And we can rejoice. He's the Christ. He is the Son of God. The great exchange has taken place so we might have life in his name. Life, life now, life eternal. We must not think that life begins at death. Of course, eternity will be glorious beyond anything we will ever comprehend. But there is life and goodness and joy to know in the Lord Jesus right now. And I hope you know that. I hope you have that sense of not just clinging to one day things will get better, but things here and now in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. There can be beauty amongst the mess. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus offers us something that is beyond our comprehension. But we are alive in him through our union with him. And because we believe Christ has brought us life. So let me ask you, do you have life in Jesus? Do you know what it is to draw near in the tragedy and the heartache and the, 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 the trials and our mess and everything else. Do you know what it is to live in those situations with Jesus? Though you do not see him, do you love him? Though you do not see him now, do you believe and do you rejoice with a joy that is focused on the acts of the Lord Jesus. First Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And of course, Jesus has just said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you believe and do you know life? That's what the purpose is. That's what the purpose comes down to. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And do you have life? The famous words, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not just in eternity, but in the here and now. Do you know, we live in a time where so many will profess Jesus. You look at the census statements of how many identify as Christians, and then you look at church attendances, and you go, there's a lot more Christians in Hamilton than people that go to church. There's a lot more, there's, there's a lot more people would say that they're Christians than would appear. And of course, church attendance doesn't make you a believer, but as believers, we want to gather with the saints. Many will profess, many do profess, but not many believe. And if you do not believe, you are robbed of that life in Jesus. 
There are so many so-called Christians who do not know the privilege and the blessing that comes from union with the Lord Jesus. Don't be one of them. There is grace to cover a multitude of sins. There is joy to fill a thousand hearts. There is peace to calm the roughest of storms. Know and live in the life that the Lord Jesus has called you to. We are called by his grace to remember that he is the cause of our faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the means of our faith. He is the end goal of our faith. Friends, I'm going to rattle on about it and you're going to hear it plenty more times from me. It's all about Jesus. That's where we've come, that's where we've come to at the end of John. We've, we've come to this point that everything rests on Jesus. Do you? John's gospel rests on Jesus. Do you? Is Jesus the be all and end all for you? Does everything start and finish with Jesus? Do you really know him? Do you really love him? Why do I believe in Jesus? He is the reason for my faith. He is the reward of my faith. He is the sustainer of my faith. We must not settle for merely knowledge about Jesus. We must remember that there is life in his name. And we must see life in his name. Friends, take time. Take time to meditate on the, the, the blessings and the privileges that are ours that we can enjoy as, as his children. Of his righteousness imputed to us that secures our place in eternity, that adopts us as sons and daughters. That we would know at the very bedrock of our hearts the assurance of a victory won. And let's worship him for choosing us in Christ. John Calvin said, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Does it? Does the message of the Lord Jesus possess your whole soul and penetrate the inner recesses of your heart? So, to bring this sermon, to bring this series to a close, D.A. Carson talks about how many guys start preaching John and then they get to chapter like seven or nine and then they kind of give up because they realize that the purpose of John is so narrow that you might believe the other Gospels are so full of narrative and so much wider than John that they get to the point where they think their congregation's sick fed up because all they hear every week is believe and share that belief. And I think actually it's a series that's benefited massively from the variety of men that have stood in this pulpit because I think it's given us perspectives that have been really, really helpful. I hope that's not been the case. I hope that each week the living word is spoken to you with clarity. I shared these words at the very beginning from R.C. Sproul's prayer as he opened the series in John. He said, my prayer is that you will grow in your knowledge of and love for the supreme treasure, Jesus the Redeemer, the one whom John the Baptist has hailed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I hope that's been true.
I hope you've grown in your knowledge and your love, and I hope you continue to day by day, whatever we study, Old Testament on you, wherever you spend your days, would we grow in our knowledge and our love of him? Over 80 times John talks about love, over 100 times he talks about believing. Believing is the be-all and end-all of this gospel. I hope you've come to know him more. I hope you've come to love him more. I hope you've been drawn near. You've been blown away by his kindness, his authority, his grace, his power. And that through that, it has given you confidence. John says in in 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ, and he is the true God and eternal life. I hope you know life and I hope you know it in abundance. But I do hope you've grown in your confidence for him as well. I hope you've come to a point where you realize and you know with such certainty that this Jesus is who he says he is, that we are desperate for this world to know him, that we are desperate for those close to us and far from us, whatever context we might know them in, to come to know this Jesus, to, to quote myself from way back in my first sermon, Lanarkshire in Scotland desperately needs Jesus-loving, Jesus-sharing disciples. There's an urgency. There's an urgency to this work. There's an urgency to this news, and it needs to go forth. And it needs to go forth from us. So the one goal is that you might believe. It's why everything's written. It's why everything is here that John has given us. This gospel is an invitation if you don't know him. It is an invitation made possible through him that we might become members of his family, participants in the ongoing mission of God, that this Jesus is who he says he is. Hallelujah. What a saviour. It's also what we're going to sing in a moment. But let's, before we gather to the table, let's, let's just bow our heads. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Lord God, we marvel at the wonder of your Son given for us. We marvel that you would love us so much that you would care to draw us near. That you would save us and not leave us there, but you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, we worship you for the Lord Jesus. Amen.